Well, today being Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week, the day the church celebrates the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, as we'll see when we get there in our study in Matthew in a couple weeks, it was, it was quite a scene, that Palm Sunday. Jesus was being welcomed into the city like a conquering king. People laying down palm branches and yelling, Hosanna, please save us. But save them from what? What did, what did they want Jesus to do? Jesus was on a mission, but not necessarily the one that they wanted him to be on. And Jesus' mission was the gospel. The gospel was God's plan to save human beings who rejected him, as Bob just prayed. Human beings who made ourselves king instead of submitting to him as our rightful king. And God in his grace had a plan to save us from ourselves, to save us from the wrath that, that uh, brought upon us for our rebellion. The people in Jerusalem who will welcome Jesus with shouts of joy and victory and prom, palm branches have much different of a mission in mind for Jesus. They wanted victory for Israel. They wanted to make Israel great again. Sorry. Yet Jesus was on a much more... I had to say it. <laughs> Jesus was on a much more different mission. One with very different mission priorities. And I hope and I pray that we will come to see three of those gospel mission priorities this morning. They're very different from the people that were yelling at him on the street that Palm Sunday. And if we were being honest, maybe they're a little different than our own priorities that we have for our gospel mission and our expectations. So let's jump again to Matthew chapter 20 as Bob read for us. Last week we heard from Jesus as he literally explained to us what he meant by the first will be last and the last shall be first. Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a vineyard where the vineyard owner is in control over and over all operations of his vineyard. And being so, he can be generous to whomever he wants. And just like God is sovereign over his kingdom and sovereign over salvation or entrance into his kingdom is an act of God's sovereign grace to us. This week, Jesus is on the road again, making his way up to Jerusalem. Some interesting things happen along the way. Look at 20 and verse 17 again. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. We've got some green ponders here, so I'm contractually obligated to show a map. So let's look at a map. Make sure you tell Ryan that I used a map and I even have a laser pointer as well, right? So Jesus has been up in Capernaum for a while, and he has been slowly making his way south. Here, guys, we'll do this on your side too. He's slowly making his way south. We think he was in Samaria for a while. We're going to find out that he's not quite in Jerusalem yet. He's actually in Jericho. That's what we're going to find out in a little bit. So if he's going south, why in the world are they saying we're going up to Jerusalem? Well, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know why. But much like the same way we say we're going up the mountain, we're going up to Highland Lakes. It's scary up there. But Highland Lakes, we go up to that. So you say wherever, wherever we are, we're going up to Highland Lakes. So it's much the same way. People would say from wherever they are, we're going up to Jerusalem. Our text tells us that he isn't alone. He has his 12 disciples with him. During the walk, he tells them something that they do not want to hear. 
He says, when I get to Jerusalem, I'll be taken into custody. I'll be turned over to the Romans. I'll be tortured. I'll die on a cross. But I will rise from the dead in three days. And what a passage to be on Holy Week, isn't it? As we look to remembering the cross next Friday and the resurrection on Sunday, we hear the words of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection. He knows and he's telling his disciples these events are imminent and they are sure. And I know all about them. You may also have noticed today as Palm Sunday, if you're looking ahead in your Bible, we missed the Palm Sunday passage by one week. We missed it by that much. And if you're, if you're visiting with us, you're like, well, why don't you just go there? Well, we're not there yet. We're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, the elders are like, what, isn't there like a little preacher trick you can do to get there? Like, not, well, no, not really. So we will get there in a few weeks. We'll take a pause next week to celebrate, of course, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. But this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death in Matthew alone. And pay attention to the words of Jesus here, church. Each one of them are important. He knows in detail what will happen. He knows the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests who have been trolling him all along and trying to get him to snap. They will finally get Rome to co-sign on this execution. He knows what awaits him. He will be mocked. He'll be whipped. He'll be beaten. He'll be crucified. The most excruciating and humiliating death that anyone was subject to at that time. He knows they will get, he will, he will have the Romans and their evil hearts join in this mission. And we say, well, there it is, evil. But look at the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. Using the evil that was in the hearts of the Romans and in the hearts of the Jews to do what? To accomplish the greatest good. Evil doesn't have the last word. Look at how our God then actually uses the evil then to then bring about our salvation, our goodness in Christ. That's what Jesus is all about. His gaze is fixed firmly on what awaited him. He knew his fate and he laid down his life willingly. And he was on mission. And here's our first point about the mission of the gospel. The mission of the gospel includes sacrifice. The mission of the gospel includes sacrifice. Sacrifice is a foundational element in the gospel. It's a necessary part of the gospel. Why? Because first of all, we're nowhere without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The whole gospel is based upon the sacrifice of Jesus giving his life. It's a first order critical doctrinal necessity. No cross, no gospel. Midweek this past week, every Wednesday night, 6.30 p.m., up there in the office, shameless plug. We were packed. You guys should get in on that. Last week, we looked at a man named J. Gresham Machen, which is probably unfamiliar to a lot of us non-denominational folks, but he was a famous Presbyterian theologian and author and professor at Princeton and Westminster Seminary in the early 1900s, and he wrote this, Christ died, that is history. Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. We have to have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There are other things, guys, that we cannot go to war over, right? We're not going to go to war over worship styles. We're not going to go to war or even some second order issues, as I was mentioning before, mode of baptism. We have brothers that we know and love that 
believe in a different mode of baptism. I'm not talking about Roman Catholic baptism, but more of the Reformed baptism. We're not going to go to war over those issues. But we will die on the hill of Jesus giving up his life for our salvation. That is a critical first order doctrine, and we cannot have the gospel without it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it is literally the most important thing. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Just pause there. You see how there actually is a doctrine that was handed down, carefully preserved. It was, it was given to Paul, and then it was carefully given to the Corinthians. There's doctrinal truth. There's a doctrinal center here, people. He says, for I delivered to you, watch this, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. The gospel is not fairy tales or wishful thinking from weak-willed, sappy, emotional, needy people. It is based on historical facts that the majority of the church has believed since the day it was born. Jesus was alive. Jesus was crucified. He died and was buried, and Jesus rose again from the dead. If anybody could produce the body of Jesus Christ, I would quit. But there's no way that that's going to happen because there was a sacrifice that was made, and that sacrifice is a critical part of the mission. Christ was delivered for us. This fact of the sacrifice of Jesus is then appropriated to us through faith. We believe in that. And we submit to that. It's not an empty faith like the Easter bunny or whatever else you want to put in there. It's it's a fact-based faith. The sacrifice of Jesus is a historical fact, and therefore we live lives of sacrifice for others. That's what we see next. Look at verse 20 in chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Okay, so pause. Let's unpack some of that. Who were the sons of Zebedee? We know from elsewhere that they were James and John. Their mother is Salome. They want something from Jesus, so naturally they send their mom to do their dirty work. That's probably not what happened. They probably, in Mark, they say that James and John were the ones that actually approached Jesus. So so it's pretty clear that there's not a mistake here. What we're talking about is all three of them knew about this. So all three of them are approaching Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want? Which to us sounds a little harsh. You know, mom comes up, she kneels before him, and he says, what do you want? Sounds a little harsh. It's not harsh. It was kind of in that culture. If you're rolling King James this morning, it's what wilt thou? You can use that with your kids when they want the snack for the 13,000th time today. What wilt thou? She literally begs him on her knees that her sons could sit at his right hand and at his left hand in the kingdom when he comes. Seats that close to the king would be seats of power, seats of authority, seats of prominence, seats of authority. Why? 
Well, remember a few weeks ago, after the the parable of the rich young man, Jesus rather obscurely mentioned to the disciples that, guess what, you're going to sit with me on 12 thrones, and you are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we see a little bit more in focus of that. So the disciples are probably starting to freak out a little bit here, because now we're getting closer to Jerusalem. We're going to roll into Jerusalem. He keeps talking now for the third time that he's going to be arrested and he's going to die. And he just told us that we're going to reign with him in the kingdom, so maybe the kingdom is happening, like right now. If it's happening right now, we better secure our seats fast. We better secure our prominence quickly. We better get mom on board with this and have her go ask Jesus. We want to be in the seats of power, the seats of prestige. This is for real. Like, have they been listening at all to what Jesus has been saying? The kingdom of God is not about power. It's not about prestige. It's not about authority. Jesus just said the last will be first and the first will be last. And he says, by the way, what he's about to tell them is the way that you get to be in a position of prominence and importance in the kingdom is your own sacrifice, not your own exaltation. Jesus is about to tell them, I'm not the only one headed for sacrifice. Look at verse 22. It says, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. It'll be another way here, another moment, I guess you'd say, where the disciples instantly regretted what they just said. They immediately regretted their decision to speak those words. Jesus says, here's the thing. You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink my cup? And biblically speaking, a, a cup is someone's destiny, Maybe more to the point here, Jesus' destiny is to drink the cup of God's wrath. And when we talk about the cup, most of the time in Scripture, it's, it's referring to the cup of God's wrath. Why does God have wrath? God has wrath for sin. We all rejected him. And the idea is that the wrath needs to be absorbed. It needs to be propitiated. And so Jesus is the one who's going to drink the cup of God's wrath, and he's going to drink it completely. And he says, are you able to drink my cup? And then they remarkably respond, yes, we are able to drink your cup, drink your cup, which is first century talk for bring it. We are going to, we are going to drink the cup. And Jesus says, guess what? You will drink the cup, but to sit on my left hand and sit on my right hand is not mine to grant, that is, for the Father to grant. And so a few things. Jesus first means that James and John are also headed for self-sacrifice. James and John. James, we know from later in the New Testament that James will be killed by the sword. And John, as church tradition tells us, was supposedly attempted to be uh, executed by being boiled in oil. And when that didn't kill him, they picked him up and then they sent him to exile on the island of Patmos, where he gave us the book of Revelation. So yes, they will drink the cup. They will probably both die martyrs for the gospel. Jesus also tells them 
that assigning positions of prominence amongst the thrones is not his role. It's his father's role. It's not up to me. He says it's up to my father who has already prepared those places for those people to sit. This is not to lessen any of Jesus' divinity. But rather, church, it shows the responsibilities of the Trinity itself. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the church, again, has believed since it started in a three-in-one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal parts God, all God in essence, but unique in roles and activity, what theological nerds call the economic trinity. Each part has a role to play, but each part is still God. And Jesus says, that's not my part to play. That's the Father's part to play. But he's not taking away from any of his divinity there just because that role is not his. When the ten disciples The other disciples heard the request of James and John. They were furious at them, probably because they were beating them to the punch. Oh, no, guys, really? Dirty trick? You're going to have mom ask that question? Really? They're probably saying, man, I could have gotten there first. I want to secure my spot next to Jesus. James and John were jockeying for power and prestige, which was not part of the mission. Matthew Henry writes, We know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and not for the grace to bear the cross in our way to it. What he's saying there in his Puritan speech is that we always ask for the glory instead of the suffering. But yet the way to the glory is through suffering. He says we don't know what we ask for. We ask for the glory, but we don't ask for the grace to bear the cross on the way to our crown. And Jesus, never missing a teachable moment, is about to drive the the point home here of what is more critical in the mission of the gospel. Look at verse 25. But Jesus called to to, to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you would be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus could have rebuked them harshly, but it seems that he's calling them gently to himself. He's like, guys, here's the deal. The, The Gentiles, the unbelievers... Those who aren't my disciples, you're acting like them. That's what they do. They have power that they lord over their subjects. They they exercise their authority for everyone to see. What James and John are doing and jockeying for power is not what we're about. That's what the unbelievers do, not us. That's what the Gentiles do, not us. The kingdom of God is a place like no other, especially not the world around us. We don't follow their rules It's about sacrifice. But Jesus says there's another aspect to it. It's about service. Jesus tells them if they want to be great, they must become a servant. Whoever would be first would be a slave. This makes no sense. But this is what Jesus has been telling them for the last three chapters. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Whoever humbles himself like this child. Whoever is last will be first. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Not those who are going to sit on my left and my right, but those who are the slaves, those who are the servants. 
And of course, slaves and servants in that day in that society were marginalized, were oppressed. They were of no social standing whatsoever. They had no power. They had no prominence. This, again, all comes down to the example of Jesus. He draws a comparison. He says, you will become servants and slaves just as I have become a servant. I've not come to be served, but I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. How is Jesus a servant? Again, this is not to diminish his divinity, his power, his glory in the flesh, but to show us the extent of his humility in the mission of the gospel. He gives our life, he gives his life, rather, for our life. To ransom someone means to buy their freedom. We are dead in sin. We are cursed in sin with no hope of gaining our freedom. And Christ pays the ransom to set us free from the slavery of sin. This is the role of a servant to serve the good of someone else. The greatest servant does the greatest good through the greatest sacrifice. That's what we see in Jesus. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what he calls his followers to do as well. So our second point, the mission of the gospel includes servanthood. The mission of the gospel includes servanthood. References to Jesus being a servant are plentiful throughout the Bible. Isaiah 53 tells us hundreds of years before Jesus comes that the Messiah will be a suffering servant. And if we look at Isaiah really quickly in verse 53, look at verse 11 and 12. The prophet Isaiah will say, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is Jesus fulfilling this prophecy of the suffering servant. Jesus himself personifies the servant in the way he ministers to the marginalized. We've seen that already, and we're going to see it again. He washed the feet of the disciples, one of the lowest jobs that anyone could have. Jesus literally gives up his life for us, the elect, his children, his church, just like a servant gives up everything for their master. Paul writes famously in Philippians chapter 2, which is probably going through many of your heads right now. Look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. I'm looking at Ephesians. That's why that's not making any sense to me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Watch this. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Did you catch that paradox? The servant becomes the exalted one. Christ giving himself up for us as our servant all the way to obedience to death on a cross then becomes who? The one who every knee bows before and glorifies. Who's greatest in the kingdom of God? The servant, he says. And I am the servant that has come. How then we subsequently serve then 
as the theme of our lives is only because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we see that in one more passage in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Watch this. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of what Christ did for us in serving us and going all the way to the cross, then what do we do? We go and we serve others. Because Christ has loved us, has given himself up for us, we give ourselves up for others. And what does that look like? First, we have to remember that our lives are in total service of Jesus. What happens if a servant doesn't want to serve the master? Well, too bad. They serve the master anyway. We're called to serve Jesus in holiness. What happens when I don't feel like being holy? Too bad. God calls us to that. I don't feel like killing sin. I don't feel like being mature in Christ. I don't feel like reading my Bible. We do these things because we're a servant, because of what God has done for us. And then we go on to serve others. What we've received from God vertically, then we bend out horizontally towards others. We have received so much to, as Jesus, our servant, so then we go and we serve others in humility. We just had some beautiful families up here, but if we asked them and they were being really honest, they tell us, yeah, some days I don't feel like being a mom. Some days I don't feel like being a dad. Some days, I don't, some nights I don't feel like getting up when they're sick. Sometimes I don't want to have the conversation for the 300th time of why you have to wear pants. I am just tired of doing it. I don't feel like running the house. I don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like doing family devotions when everything's on fire. I don't feel like it. Why do I do it? Because Christ gave himself for me. And so I serve others. Because Christ served us, so we serve others. Jesus is going to once again walk this out as he cares for the marginalized. Look at verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened and Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. So as they're leaving Jericho, they see blind men begging by the side of the road, which was not an uncommon sight. They were hoping for high traffic areas in and out of the city, and they would sit by the gates, and they would beg. They would beg for food, or they would beg for money. They realize Jesus is passing by, and they start yelling, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, show us mercy. Much like the situation with the children, they are immediately shut down. This time not by the disciples, but by the crowd that is following Jesus. Stop that. Jesus doesn't have time for you. We're leaving the city. Stop talking. Stop yelling. Stop asking him for stuff. I love these guys. They don't care. <laughs> oh, you want me to be quiet? I'm going to say it all the louder. Jesus, show me mercy. Son of David. They're undeterred. They cry out louder. Our text tells us that it succeeds because Jesus stops. He calls to them and says again, what do you want me to do for you? The answer is simple and what you might think. We want to see. We want to see again. Jesus, feeling pity and compassion for them, touches their eyes and instantly they can see again. 
And don't miss this. What do they then do? They follow him. Follow him because of what he's done for them. And also don't miss this. James and John, they boldly approach Jesus Christ with their proud, prideful request and say, Jesus, give us the spots of power and glory. And he says, no. And there's two blind men who have nothing in the world, humbly crying out in full dependence on Jesus Christ. And they say, Jesus, just let us see. And he says, yes. Do we get that? Do we see the difference The comparison of these two stories. These blind men simply cry out in their darkness, Lord, show us mercy, and he does. James and John come to Jesus in their pride, and these two blind men come to Jesus in their humility. And so our third or final point this morning about the mission of the gospel is that the mission of the gospel includes humility. We cannot escape this contrast. Who gets their request answered? The humble blind men. Because humility is all over the Bible. Isaiah 66, 2 tells us that God looks favorably on the one who is humble, submissive to him, and trembles at his word. 1 Peter 5, 5 tells us that we're to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. He says, God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. There was never a more humble man on the face of the earth than Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's God. He's God in the flesh. Yet he lowered himself, he condescended to us, took on human flesh. The paradox of who he was, right? God the Son, yet humbled himself to be in human form. Fully and truly man, and still fully and truly God. That's a humility that we can't even comprehend. And certainly an act worthy of worship. And that's where we, or why we gather to sing, rather because he's worthy of all glory and praise. The mission of the gospel includes humility. And as we seek to apply this word of God to our lives, ask ourselves, where in our life do we need more humility? That is a very dangerous prayer, by the way. Much like God, show me my sin, no problem. (laughs) Right? I always think those are like requests that he will answer immediately. God, make me more humble. Okay. Get ready. Because it's coming. But yet, we all need it. One author said, it's not where, it's not if we have pride, rather, but where is our pride? It it seeps into everything. We're Americans, for crying out loud. All we do is think about ourselves. It's what we want. How can I, how can I better myself? James and John just were the ones that did it out loud. Sometimes our prayers might have more to do with God giving us our selfish desires and elevating our own position. Instead of being like the humble blind men, as we cry out to Jesus, just let me see what I'm supposed to see. Let me me see you. Let, Let me see the ways that you're calling me to be more like you. Let me see the ways that I could serve others. We see what sort of request that Jesus answers this morning, don't we? This coming Friday, we see our example. Jesus the ultimate example of humility, going to the cross. In church, as Christians, we are on mission. We're on the mission of the gospel. Jesus sets the mission's priorities when he was here on earth, and he says, be like me. Do what I did. Look at the humility, despite who I was. Be like me, humble. 
The mission of the gospel includes sacrifice. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly subjected himself to horrific torture and death at the hands of evil men. But all along, he knew that this was the way to provide salvation for his children. So the sacrifice was worth it. The supreme wisdom and sovereignty of God, using that evil, harnessing that evil to bring about the greatest good. We sacrifice to follow Jesus. It is a sacrifice to follow Jesus. We're called to deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow Jesus. The life of a disciple is a life of sacrifice. We say, say no to ourselves many times. We say no to sin. Being a follower of Jesus means sacrifice. The mission of the gospel includes servanthood. We see Jesus as the ultimate example of a servant, the suffering servant, foretold hundreds of years before Jesus came in Isaiah. We think of Jesus as our king, but he also was our servant. This is the way that we're to treat each other, not lording our power or position or status over each other, but serving one another. Husbands serving their wives and their families, elders serving their churches, members serving one another, serving the church. The mission of the gospel includes humility, one in which we seek not only our own interests, but also the interests of others. We consider others' needs as more important than our own. We seek to outdo one another in showing honor. And traditionally today on Palm Sunday, we remember the triumphal entry. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, where the, the people laid down palm branches and yelled to welcome their conquering king to come and free them from Rome. Jesus was not the kind of king that they were looking for. They didn't want a servant king. They didn't want a sacrificing king. They didn't want a humble king. They didn't want a king riding in on a donkey. They wanted a king riding in on a war horse who was going to come and kick Rome out. And Palm Sunday shows us the misunderstandings of the people, what they wanted in a king. It shows us their complete lack of understanding as to what the mission included. They didn't want sacrifice. They wanted conquest. They didn't want servanthood. They wanted authority and power. They didn't want humility. They wanted glory. And Jesus came to reset those mission priorities. The mission of the gospel, including sacrifice, servanthood, and humility. We have much to pray for for these church. That was a question. It kind of went up at the end. We have much to pray for about these church. We do. Because we all need work on these. All of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. Lord, as we look at the sacrifice of Jesus, the servanthood of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. Father, especially as we start Holy Week, as we think about Good Friday coming, as we think about the ultimate act of sacrifice, of servanthood, of humility on the cross, help us, Lord, to be more like Jesus. Why? Because of what he has done for us. Help us to see those opportunities where we can advance the gospel mission because of what you have called us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.